Good morning, Grace Life. And certainly, good morning to all of you who are joining us by live stream this morning. It is again a wonderful day that the Lord has made. So thankful to be a participant in all that um, he has been doing and continues to do. Thank you so much, music team, for leading us in that, uh, that wonderful praise. Just stirs the heart. And I'm so grateful, again, for this opportunity this morning to bring the Word of God. These last, now, five this week is six weeks has been a privilege for me to stand in this sacred desk and uh, to bring you the word from Philippians that's been so applicable to all that we've been going through. I have sometimes said I wish it were under different circumstances, but truthfully, I don't know what those circumstances would be. So I'm thankful for the circumstances that the Lord has brought about, and certainly the gospel has been advancing powerfully, and for that we are truly grateful. We'll be in Philippians again this morning. You can already turn there. Philippians chapter 1. This morning the intent is to travel through verses 12 through 18. So 12 through 18 of Philippians chapter 1. And it's, it's truly remarkable that we're in this passage this morning. Now, many of you, I'm sure, have participated in a, church, a church's annual general meeting. Typically, we see in those meetings there are reports that are given, ministry reports given by those who have leadership roles in, in distinct ministries. And so... It's a, it's a time to inform members about all that has been taking place over the course of a ministry, uh, whether it be short term or even a longer term. And certainly what we see here from Paul in these few verses that we'll be going through this morning is essentially what amounts to a ministry report. It's his missions report to the Philippians it, with all that's been happening in his ministry, even as he's in prison in Philippi. And so it's from Paul to believers, and truthfully, had I crafted it, this may very well be the way um, Paul's ministry report would have sounded had I put it together. So I probably would have started with um, taking people to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, and speaking of Jesus' ascension, where we read, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And already here, you'd begin to understand Paul's ministry purpose, and that he has been used mightily by God in advancing the gospel. And interestingly enough, this began already before he had been converted on the Damascus Road. You see, Saul, or Paul as I'm referring to him, was present at the stoning of Stephen. Although not yet a Christian, not yet drawn to Christ, he was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. 
And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. We read that in Acts chapter 8, right at the very beginning of the chapter. And according to Jesus' words, the gospel advanced as believers scattered from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria as a result of Saul's persecution. And so isn't it neat to see how already pre-conversion, the Lord is using Saul as his instrument. And then, of course, Paul is converted on the Damascus Road. He's appointed to a very specific ministry. And we've already seen this. I've, I've mentioned this to you a couple of times as we've been in Philippians. We read um, where Christ is speaking of Paul to uh, Ananias, and he says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake, Acts 9 and verses 15 and 16. And we then read immediately there following that immediately Paul began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues saying, he is the son of God, Acts 9 verse 20. And then we also see that he was increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ, Acts 9 and verse 22. And so immediately then also the Jews set out to kill Paul. They need to get him out of the way. And yet, perhaps because of his, his earlier life and his earlier experiences, his influence, he was able to move about freely in Jerusalem before leaving. And as he leaves Jerusalem, we see Paul then take the gospel beyond even Judea and Samaria. As he sails to Cyprus, and very quickly, a first Gentile convert there is made, a Roman proconsul, as he believes upon hearing the proclamation of Jesus Christ from Paul's lips. And then we also see Paul's gospel ministry on the map. And it's really like just taking a stone and dropping it in water and seeing those concentric circles move outward because there's a ripple effect that takes place as Paul goes forward in his missionary journeys. That, that ripple effect takes the gospel into Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And then it also takes it then to Macedonia, and specifically to Philippi, as we've been seeing, which is essentially the gospel landing on European soil for the first time. And really, although from Jerusalem to Rome, where he is now writing from, is roughly 1,400 miles, we know that the gospel has traveled significantly further than that, because if we just take a look at those three journeys that he's taken, we'd have to multiply that number several times over. And so along the way, Paul's been making disciples, many of whom are listed by name, and he's been planting churches in the locations that he's been stopping at along the way. And all the while, as Christ said he would, he's been enduring many trials. He's been suffering for the sake of the gospel. Now, this could serve as a ministry report for Paul, could it not? 
I could easily use that. It defines, describes a lot of what he's gone through. But we need to immediately make one observation here in our text this morning. We need to notice the brevity of Paul mentioning any of his experiences. Okay, let's hold that front and center this morning. Now, we can assume that the news of his experiences has certainly landed on the ears of the, of the Philippians as, as several times they've sent generous gifts to him by various messengers, no doubt, and that news of his ministry experiences have traveled back and forth. So I wouldn't say that the, the Philippians are, are, are uninformed, but certainly here as we read this ministry report directly from his letter, the introductory matter here, Really, two words encapsulate all of his ministry experiences. And they're those two words. Circumstances, we see in verse 12. And then imprisonment in 13. He really doesn't divulge any other information regarding that. And I think that's significant. We need to, again, take note of that. So why? Why should we take note of that? Well, clearly Paul is showing us that he himself is not the focal point of his ministry, right? He's taking the spotlight off of himself, off of his experiences. Why? Well, obviously, so that Christ can be proclaimed, even here, even now in this, in this opening uh, information that he's presenting to the Philippians. And really, it, there's a parallel, because I've so loved receiving the news that has come even from James while he was in prison and from Aaron as she went through several interviews. Christ was magnified. The gospel was proclaimed. No complaints over circumstances, no real experiences made mention of despite hardships and suffering and their ministry reports were all about the gospel, weren't they? All about making much of Christ. And for that, we can be greatly thankful. It was their desire, certainly, and continues to be, that the gospel would make greater progress even through them so that the cause of Christ would also be known. So immediately we see a parallel here with what we've gone through as a church, even as Paul is describing you know, very briefly, his circumstances and, and imprisonment, really not making much more of that, but certainly desiring to show that the, the gospel has progressed. Let's read Philippians 1 and these verses, 12 through 18. Let's draw our attention to the text, beginning in verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of, a lo out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, 
thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. So there's immediately a theme here that we notice, and it's in verse 18. Only that in every way, Christ is proclaimed. That's really what he's describing here. And each one of us need to consider how our lives, how our circumstances contribute to advancing the gospel, even as Paul and his ministry did. I've chosen to title this sermon this morning, Paul's Ministry Report, and then Gospel Priority. We notice Gospel Priority in Paul's ministry report. Now, as we've been traveling through the text, through Philippians over the last five weeks, we've already seen much in the opening verses of Paul's Christ-centered approach, have we not? Slaves of Christ in verse 1. Saints in Christ in verse 1 again. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and Christ. Not only that, but then in verse 5, we see that there's been participation in the gospel of Christ. And then again in in verse 6, being perfected until the day of Christ. So we see again and again, his gospel, this this, um, epistle, I should say, is all about putting the focus on Christ. He's been in prison for Christ. He's defending Christ. Christ. He's defending the gospel of Christ. He's also confirming the gospel of Christ through his life in verse 7. And he longs with the affection of Christ for the Philippians in verse 8. Now he, he prays on their behalf. He desires that they exhibit love and discernment and that they can approve those things that, which are excellent and showing integrity until the day of Christ in verse 10. And then he certainly desires to see them bear much fruit, the fruit of righteousness, which only comes through Christ in verse 11. So I think we see Paul's focus here. Now, if verse 12 wouldn't be about Christ, there would be a problem. Would there not be? I think we'll see that here too. So What we'll see in this text here, in these verses, 12 through 18, is Paul describing two outcomes of his imprisonment, which produce joy in his gospel ministry. And he does this so that you too can evaluate your own gospel ministry in the face of hardship. Hardship hasn't left us at this point yet. We still have the spotlight on grace life. And so while some things seem to have seen some relief, we need to understand that we're still in a period of suffering and hardship. And Paul's gospel here, this, this epistle, I should say, these, even these words will help us to, to remain on a proper trajectory. Now, I've divided this into two parts. Verses 12 through 14 are going to present the influence of Paul's imprisonment on gospel advancement. So the influence of his imprisonment on gospel advancement, and we'll see this happen two ways, both indirectly and then directly. 
And then secondly, we'll see the impact of his imprisonment on gospel proclamation. And we'll see that in verses 15 through 18. And again, we're going to see this given in sort of two ways. First, we'll see that there are selfish motives involved in gospel proclamation, and then certainly there are selfless motives involved as well. So first, let's, let's have a look at the influence of his imprisonment on gospel advancement or in the progress of the gospel in verses 12 through 14. Let's, let's read through, the, through these verses again. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has, been, has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Now this really um, introduces the informative part, right? The instructive part of Paul's letter to the saints. And you may recall my mentioning, I think it was last week, that the chains that Rome had placed on Paul could only keep him physically, right? But they couldn't restrain his heart, right? And we see that as he pours out joyful prayer on behalf of the, of the Philippians, right? The, his chains are incapable of restraining his heart. His trains, or his chains, I should say, also cannot shackle the gospel, and we'll notice that here, right? So just as his heart can't be restrained, certainly the gospel is not restrained by any shackles that a government could place on it either. In fact, Paul expresses the positive results of his chains. We would see these as negative, right? This isn't a good thing that I'm chained up, and yet there's a positive impact, positive impacts that we see here in the text. And in verse 12, he uses the word greater, greater progress of the gospel. My circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And really what he's doing here is he's using a word that carries a nuance that indicates a surprising alternative, actually. And so we could actually translate that as instead or rather. We should be making note of this because it's really meant to accentuate something that would be a surprise, that may be surprising to the Philippians. One would think that his imprisonment would in some way inhibit the gospel, right? That it would keep it from progressing as it has but that's not the case at all and so we immediately then also need to recognize God's sovereign hand at work as the gospel is progressing it's it's the work of God and I believe that Paul is acknowledging that here it has to be God's work and God is working here as Paul describes in two distinct groups of people the results of his imprisonment are essentially twofold. And in a way, the gospel is advancing, first of all, here indirectly. And that's what he's describing here. As he talks about the gospel landing on these unbelieving Praetorian guard. Now notice 
Not only did the gospel proclaimed, not only was the gospel proclaimed through Paul geographically, right? We see that even if you go to the maps in the back of your Bible, you'd see that the, geographically the gospel has advancing. But now we also notice that in society, the gospel is traveling through different levels of society, essentially. And that's what we see with it landing on the ears of the Praetorian Guard. Now, we've, we've seen this in other places. Again, I've, I mentioned Cyprus. The proconsul was um, saved under, Paul, under Paul's preaching. He also had an opportunity to present the gospel to the governors Felix and, Festiv- and, and Festus, and, um, as well as King Agrippa. And now here in the Praetorian Guard, and then they're going to carry it beyond. Now, this Praetorian Guard, I've been told, is upwards of 9,000 elite, hand-picked soldiers that are distributed throughout Rome to maintain the, the Roman Empire, essentially. And some of these men would have been chained to Paul in four-hour shifts and then switching off. And so over the course of his imprisonment, which goes for a number of years, he certainly would have been exposed to several different guards over that time. And those guards would have noticed something about Paul. They certainly would have heard him you know, testifying to the truth, even testifying to how he himself was drawn to Christ. But they also, no doubt, observed his demeanor. And we know that his demeanor, as he describes it here to Philippi, is one of joy. He takes great joy despite his circumstances. And so certainly this would have had an impact on these, this specific group of soldiers Paul says that through this specific group of soldiers, his allegiance has been made known. His allegiance to Christ essentially has been made known. Now, what does this mean? Well, if we look at the text in verse 13, he says, my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known. Now, has become well known uh, means that it's been made visible or clear. It's been allowed to be plainly seen. It's become evident to these men that have been shackled to him. And Paul's chains have identified him with Christ to the guards, right? They've clearly seen that this man is a disciple of Christ. This man is a follower of Christ. He's proclaimed that. He's also demonstrated that to them. And it's become clearly known. And so Paul's imprisonment really has served to put on display the saving work of Christ in his own life. And that's been put into plain view. And not only has it been put into plain view, but then it's been carried forward from this Praetorian Guard. Now, I'm sure, as even as our own pastor would have uh, maybe been asked this question, I'm sure Paul was asked, why are you in here? What have you done? Right? I'm sure he he faced that question several times. And it's given Paul an opportunity to speak of his chains being really his fellowship or his participation in the sufferings of Christ, even as we've seen him in chapter 3 and verse 10 articulate to the Philippians. And his sufferings are therefore a necessary part of fulfilling his ministry. This is something that's unavoidable, right? 
He's not there because man has placed him in the prison. He's there because God has willed him to be in prison for that time, for such a moment. And so, what a wonderful witness Paul has been. And this witness is certainly traveling through the whole, as, as the text says, the whole Praetorian Guard has become aware of this. And not only have they become aware of it, but then they've also been um, sharing that with others. And again, I, I have to say, this parallels no doubt your time at the remand, right? As um, I'm sure many guards, and we, we've seen in social media, many people in society have struggled with, why is this man in jail, right? But we know. We know exactly why he was there. He was there so that others could notice a clear difference in him, right? That he's been set apart for something much greater. And so, what a wonderful testimony to Christ. What a wonderful testimony of the gospel going forward. And they got to see a clear difference. And they got to hear the, that Christ was proclaimed. They got to hear the gospel. And all according to God's sovereign plan. Right? Nothing out of step. Actually, fully in lockstep with God's plan. And for that, we can be thankful. Now, we need to remember that the impact here is twofold, as I've said. So we've seen that God is, is using Paul, essentially, to put his testimony on display through unbelievers, certainly, this Praetorian Guard, there may have been some that were saved, but I, I would think that this is a group of unbelieving men. But then we also see that there's a second group that's involved in advancing the gospel here through Paul, and their impact is what I would consider to be direct, where the Praetorian Guard is kind of indirect advancement of the gospel. This is much more direct, and we see it again in the text here. This is within the believing community now as they've been stimulated to testify to Christ more boldly as a result of knowing what Paul's experiences are in his imprisonment. They're standing publicly in Rome and testifying to Christ. They're proclaiming, they're speaking the word of God without fear, even in the face of opposition, in the face of rejection. And it's interesting that Paul uses the same term here, uh, courage, um, where he says, far more courageous. This is the same term actually used to describe Joseph of Arimathea as he goes before Pilate to ask of Jesus' body to be buried. And what incredible courage that must have taken in those circumstances, in that, in that moment. And here again, we see that you know, despite possible opposition or rejection, there's a resolved boldness, even in the face of ever-present danger, and yet they are more daring. These believers are more daring, and it's not because they lacked courage previously. We shouldn't read the text that way, but now they're even more emboldened to proclaim Christ to all that they would meet now, we know that our world tries to make the gospel ineffective, essentially, in us, right? Through intimidation. We've even seen that more recently. 
And certainly, any heart that's focused on self is going to be fearful. But here we see the majority of believers in Rome, right? This isn't a minority. Most of the brethren, the text says, most of the brethren are emboldened. They're, they've been given a courage based off of Paul's example, even as he's uh, languishing in, in imprisonment. Why? Well, Paul says they're trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment. Literally, we could read the text this way. Being convinced in the Lord of my bonds. That's literally how the text reads. And Christ was using the chained to give courage to the unchained. Isn't that neat? He's using the chained to give courage to the unchained. And I believe that Grace Life again can testify exactly or can identify with exactly what Paul is saying here. And not only can Grace Life identify with this as we've been given more courage and to be able to proclaim the gospel without fear, to speak uh, the word of God without fear. But we've seen that in the Jacob Reomes of Canada. We've seen that in the Tim Stevens of Canada. We've seen that in the Aaron Rocks of Canada and many others as they too have courage that they're displaying and many others as well are gaining confidence through that. Now, I wish it were so that it would be going through all of the churches, but sadly, that's, that's not the case, and we know that. We know that there are those that remain dispassionate throughout this time that we find ourselves in. And they've continued to divide their allegiance between Christ and Caesar. They, they continue to remain unconvinced by the times that they're in. They're not persuaded. And so as of yet, are unable to stand courageously. And I would say this, that not only can they not stand courageously, they also will not experience the joy then that comes out of that courageous stand. Even as we've seen Paul, right? And we continue to see Paul testify to that in this epistle. We know that persecution and, and suffering causes courageous gospel progress. We can trust that, especially from the word of God. And really, this is, this is what Paul desires to witness in the Philippians as well. He wishes to see a similar progress. And he articulates that in verses 25 and 26 of chapter 1. He says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. And so he desires for them also to be more confident, more courageous, that he would see a progress in their own spiritual lives in the midst of circumstances that they are facing. And so it's his desire for them and others as well. We know that God didn't work here and isn't working despite Paul's circumstances. He's not working despite Paul's imprisonment, but rather he's working through Paul's imprisonment, even as, again, he has divinely ordained that to take place. 
And so that's the first outcome of Paul's imprisonment, which led to a resultant joy in Paul's life as, his, as he saw his influence going forward. And certainly the gospel, his gospel ministry um, was influencing gospel progress. And this happened two ways. Through unbelievers, speaking of Paul's predicament, even as they had witnessed it, right? The Praetorian Guard telling it to all, everybody else. And then at the same time, he, he was able to show uh, through his faithful ministry a way that the majority of believers in Rome could become more courageous in their evangelism. And so we have to ask ourselves then right now, has your life had the impact of Paul, as Paul describes here? Or has your life been impactful even as our pastor's life? Are you aiding in the progress of the gospel? Are you able to do that? Are unbelievers seeing your faithful example, right? Now is the time. Now is an incredible time for us to demonstrate to the unbelieving world the testimony of Jesus Christ. And even as this gets put out on the internet, right, around the world, that they would tune in out of a curiosity and hear the gospel proclaimed. This is, our, this is a time, certainly, and let's not, let's not lose sight of that. Or have, have others gleaned courage to speak of Christ as a result of their conversations with you? I realize in, in speaking with many of you, you've got family members, you've got friends, you've got coworkers. They're, they're asking questions, certainly, but other believers as well, right, coming to you. They're curious. They want, to, they want to know. And this is an awesome opportunity that God is presenting to us to, in some way, be able to instill a, a courage in them. Not that we do that. Not that we have the ability to do that. But the Lord would use us as his instrument to instill courage in others as we continue to stand. And so as God brings people to us, the opportunity is now, and it's by divine appointment, each one. Let's not overlook that, and let's make sure that our, your bold witness will muster courage in other Christians. So that's the first point. Let's move on to the second part of this. The second is the impact of Paul's imprisonment on gospel proclamation. And so we see this happen in two ways in verses 15 through 18. Let's take a look at the text here again. Paul writes, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of pure motives thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. And so we immediately see here Paul making reference back to verse 14, where he's talking about most of the brethren, most of the brethren in Rome 
he's now giving that a better definition. He's bringing it that, that most, that group, into a higher definition. And actually, in order to show that there's a, there's a contrast taking place, even within the group, and each of the subgroups that he describes here are going to be defined or distinguished by their motives. And so first he says, some preach Christ from envy and strife. And so this first term gives a sense of jealousy in the hearts of, of some of the believers. And, and Paul helps us to better understand exactly what the state of the heart is in these believers in other areas of, of his epistles. So in his letter to Titus, for instance, he includes envy in a list. When he says in Titus 3, verse 3, he says, For we also were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. And so we see in that list of vices, envy is listed, and it's described here as a foolishness, essentially. A foolishness in the moment, uh, in the moment of the believer, in the life of the believer. And it's listed also among the vices that stem from a depraved mind in Romans 1, verse 29. And it also, in 1 Timothy 6, 4, is described as, as a vice that is not in conforming to godliness. It doesn't demonstrate godliness in the life of the believer. And it's listed among the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5 and verse 21. And in 1 Peter 2 verse 1, Peter says that this is something that, this is an attitude that needs to be put aside in favor of longing for the pure milk of the word. So we see a remedy there, right? A remedy for this envious attitude, this, this envious attitude of the heart. And so that helps us to understand, in part, the, the motives behind what uh, they're doing, even in their gospel proclamation. But then secondly, he says, it's not only envy, but strife that has overtaken them. And here we see that they're engaging in rivalry, um, especially with reference to position in, um, in taking a, 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 uh, positions in taking a matter, uh, taking sides on a matter. So there's discord, there's contention that's being raised. And again, as in Titus 3.3 and Titus 3.9, we see that this is also foolishness to be avoided and not only that, but he, Paul deems it as unprofitable and worthless. That, that's what this behavior uh, brings about. It's, it's unprofitable and worthless behavior. And then Paul writes to the Romans, in, and he says, Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day. And so in terms of strife, this isn't proper behavior. We're called to behave properly. And this is actually um, deeds of, of darkness that are demonstrated through, even through the life of the believer. It's fleshly behavior. And it's as if we're walking not in Christ-likeness, 
but that we are simply walking as mere men through this world. And that's certainly not the way we want to conduct ourselves. And so again, we see that strife is listed in the, the same lists of vices that uh, we see in Romans 1 and Galatians 5 and 1 Timothy verse 6. And so there's a, there's a warning here and a strong warning that we should be gleaning from what Paul is saying here, that these motives are not fitting, they're unbecoming of the Christian. They're not appropriate for the believer. And really, we just need to call a spade a spade. This is evil in the heart of the believer. And it needs to be uh, put off. It needs to be repented of and turning back to Christ. Now, there's, there's another group, a second group, that Paul is, is describing here. And they are the ones preaching Christ from goodwill. And that goodwill being attributed to the love that they have. It's a... Uh, it's a kind-hearted or benevolent disposition that Paul is describing here in the lives of these believers. And this is a godliness really modeled after the good pleasure and kindness of God himself. And we've seen at other times that this is exactly how we are to conduct ourselves, right? In a godly manner and often in scripture, we, we better understand how to go about that when we first understand how that's demonstrated in God to us so that then we can return that to him, but then also exercise that among our one another uh, and then certainly to the unbelieving world. These proclaim Christ in this way because they've sensed Paul's ministry. And so it's interesting that he uses a term here that really is is uh, speaking to the knowledge that's gained um, through sensory um, observation, essentially. They've seen Paul in his ministry, right? We know that many people were able to come to Paul even while he was under house arrest in Rome. And so many of these Romans have actually been able to see his ministry. Many of them have heard about his ministry and, or heard it directly from him. And certainly... They've been in contact with him. So that's where we get the sensory uh, idea of knowledge that's being described here. And certainly, this is in stark contrast with those who um, are just exhibiting selfish ambitions. And we need to notice how Paul compares them. So just take a look back at the text. He, he says in... In verse 17, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives. But then he goes on to say, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. And so we need to contrast this knowledge that's gained by sensory perception with this idea of thinking. They don't have a knowledge, but they're merely thinking. They're, they're on their own, really. They're thinking that they cause Paul distress in his imprisonment, but really they're out of touch. And that's how we would understand this word thinking that Paul uses here. They're controlled by their imaginations. To think or to imagine um, is some, sometimes the way this, this word that Paul uses 
is translated interchangeably. They only suppose what they think to be true, but they're not certain. And so there's a, there's a lack of clarity in terms of truth in their minds, even as they're motivated by selfish ambitions. And Paul uses this, this term, the terms that he uses, the term that he uses here is directly related back to this causing of strife or this being selfishly contentious. And so it's not surprising when we see Paul then, he's exhorting unity, right? In the epistle to the Philippians, he says in chapter 2 and verse 3, he says, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And so this is a, a remedy, certainly, to repent of that and to do nothing from selfishness, to do nothing from empty conceit out of pride or, or a, a sense of selfishness. And so it's no wonder then if we recall even to last week how Paul earnestly prays and prays joyfully that the Philippians would have a, an integrity, right? That they would be sincere, that they would be found blameless. And at the same time, we could say then that the character of, of the selfishly ambitious really resembles that pottery that we saw last week. You know, the, the pottery with the crack had been filled in with wax, but when held up to the light, you could see the blemish, right? And so we need to take note of that. We can't be controlled by envy and strife. We can't lack sincerity or be led by selfish desires. And for Paul here, these people weren't necessarily seeking to rub salt in his wounds even as he's in prison, right? They're not trying to make his, his life physically more difficult. But their motive certainly is intended to aggravate him emotionally in some way, even as he's in chains. That's troubling. They're, they're trying to be a source of discouragement for him as he continues to suffer in chains. Or in some way to add an annoyance to his predicament. And so for us, it, I think it's important that we understand clearly exactly who these people are that, that um, Paul is describing here. You see, he identifies them as believers, right? But that doesn't sound, the behavior, the attitude doesn't sound becoming of a believer, right? And these are certainly some of the brethren, even as he has said. But they lack understanding. They lack an understanding of what Paul is facing in, his in the persecution that he's enduring through and in his suffering. And so they see Paul's example of prison ministry but they see it as being detrimental in some way to the honor and prestige that they themselves desire. And that's causing them to proclaim Christ, but doing so to try to draw attention to themselves. These aren't the Judaizers that are described in and addressed in, in Galatians. That's not who Paul is talking about here. These are not some uh, unbelievers. These are, these are believers. These are not the factious that he addresses in 1 Corinthians, right? Again, these, these are the believers in Rome who simply, 
he is just pointing out to us, he's exposing for us that these are people that carry personal rivalry, right? Personal animosity towards, towards him specifically. And so this is something to be avoided. We need to realize that he's described two groups, both of them proclaiming Christ, but they're differing very much so in their motives. Now, we have to then at the same time ask, given the heaviness, right, of who he's describing here, envious, uh, being, you know, after causing strife and uh, selfish ambition, what they possess, we have to at the same time ask, is it possible that Paul's joy can be stolen? Does this rob him of his joy? No, certainly not, right? Nor should it if we encounter something like this. But at the same time, this ought to present a warning to us. You see, there can easily be a, competitive, a competitiveness bred within the church. And I would say that it's symptomatic of churches that are too closely acquainted, too thoroughly acquainted with the culture, right? We want to be set apart. We don't necessarily want to be seen like the rest of the world. This isn't a popularity contest. We don't desire to be pragmatic in any way, desiring you know, numerical growth or influence in some way. Sure, we desire numerical growth, but because the gospel is proclaimed, not simply to get people in the door. And I'd say in ministry, this in my own personal experience, can occur very quickly. We really need to be on guard for this. That's why Paul is, is speaking of this. Now, I have, to, I have to confess, as I was in seminary and in preaching lab, I would rank myself among the eight. <laughs> Thankfully, I was eighth. But I did rank myself nonetheless, and it was a temptation that I had to repent of time and time again because it wasn't helpful in any way. And we can very easily, you know, even as we're serving in the church, we can rank ourselves. We can try to get one up on somebody, even as we are, seem to be presenting the gospel, serving faithfully. And so we need to make sure that we're our, our motives are, are right, right? And, and now it seems troubling to me to think that someone can get the gospel right, yet have evil motives on their heart, does it not? And I would have to ask, is someone like that pleasing to God? Does that please God? I, I think I could parallel this in, in some way with some of the unsympathetic responses that we've seen in evangelicalism to our predicament. We've desired to be faithful to Christ and be faithful in presenting his gospel, and yet there have been a number of leaders and certainly a number, a multitude of churches that in the face of all that Grace Life has experienced, and certainly the Coates family, and as we've suffered alongside them, it's only served to expose a pridefulness of the heart in individuals and in churches. And I would exhort them, this requires a careful and prayerful self-examination on their part. 
And I pray that they would earnestly desire to participate faithfully in the gospel. Let's just finish these final minutes in verse 18, where we read, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Now, we see a brief question that immediately draws our attention to Paul's summation, really, his conclusion. And he desires to see exactly this type of perspective in the minds of the believers in Philippi. He desires to see that they're participating in the gospel with him, even in suffering, and that Christ would be proclaimed through their suffering. So whether in a manner reflecting poor motives, which I would certainly hope that wouldn't be among us, where selfish motives are driving the gospel proclamation, or on the other hand, if it's truly in an upright manner and, and you are simply proclaiming the truth of Christ from a pure heart, whether you're in one of those two camps, Paul's summation is this. He still rejoices in the fact that the Christ is being proclaimed. He's still rejoicing that Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection is being made abundantly clear and being proclaimed among all who hear. And so there we have it. This is Paul's ministry report. And it reflects the matter of first importance that we know Paul uh, has, even as he's expressed that in, other, uh, in another letter. It certainly puts the spotlight on his single passion, right? This is all about Christ, everything that he has just written to to the believers in Philippi. And may this also be then our theology, right? If we take a look at what Paul has written, may we have the same view. May we be able to see the divine perspective and be able to articulate it so clearly. May we be able to recognize the grace of God at work in every one of our circumstances. Now remember, his imprisonment was no accident. It wasn't at the hands of, of men, really, but it had been appointed to him to go through suffering, including this imprisonment. And at the same time, it was never about him to, to begin with, was it? His imprisonment, all of his experiences, the circumstances that he found himself in, they were never to, in some way, promote Paul, although we can look at him as a, as an excellent ministry example, but he would simply defer, wouldn't he? He would defer to Christ. He would say, I'm just simply imitating the one who saved me. And that's what we must do as well. And so we need to understand from Paul here this morning that the power of the gospel does not depend on the personality of the preacher, does it? Because in both types of motives we see the gospel can be proclaimed and people can be saved. So it's nothing to do with the personality of the preacher. It's nothing to do with you or me, but it's everything to do with the power of God. 
And thankfully, the gospel's not at the mercy of the motives of men, as we've seen here, is it? Right? Someone can proclaim the gospel, have the wrong motives, and yet add to the kingdom, be used to add to the kingdom, essentially. And we can see here that while man can be chained, right? And we see that with Paul, the message of Christ cannot. You can put a man in the remand center. The gospel's not inhibited, not in the least. In fact, it progresses. And we're thankful for that. Why? Because it's the power of God, right? Paul has said this ever so clearly in 1 Corinthians 1 and 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's not the power of man. It's the power of God to those who are being saved. Well, this morning, maybe there are some here, like the whole Praetorian Guard, right? You've been watching You've been, you've been witnessing gospel proclamation. You've been hearing it. You've been seeing the lives of people, even in this church, played out. And yet you just, you can't put your finger on it. What distinguishes them, right? What is it about them? I'm, I'm not getting this. Well, we need to understand, again, it's the power of God in regenerating the heart because the heart is desperately wicked and it's as a result of sin and sin needs to be repented of because we've seen a man go to to jail now right he's been in chains but he couldn't be more free could he and at the same time there are those of you even among us here who remain enslaved to sin you're imprisoned by it you're shackled to it, and you, you choose to continue in it. Well, I, I ask you, you need to submit, surrender to Christ today. You see, he was sent to pay the penalty for sin, and he did so out of a, an obedience to his father who put together the plan of redemption. And out of obedience, he came to earth he ministered, he demonstrated God, essentially, exactly. He was the exact representation, even as he walked on the earth. And then after demonstrating that, he went to the cross, where God put the sin of the world on him, on his shoulders. And it pleased God to crush him so that the penalty for sin would be paid. And your penalty, the penalty that you still face, can be paid through Christ, through trusting in his death and his resurrection as being what has satisfied the wrath of God over your sin. There's no other way. There's no other way. And then not only did he die, but he was raised again. And that is evidence that the father was pleased with his sacrifice. He was pleased with what his work accomplished. And from it, we see both death and sin defeated once and for all. And you too can enter into that, into that reconciled relationship with God. See, currently you're separate. 
Currently, you're separated from God. But through Christ, by repenting and believing in him, by turning from your sin, seeking forgiveness, having your sin removed, forgiven, you can enter into a reconciled relationship with the God of this universe, the God who sent his son, the God who purposed Paul to be in prison so that the gospel would advance that very same God. Or maybe you believe, right? Perhaps you're, you're believing, but your motives are not right. They're not pure. And you find yourself here or you find yourself in a church somewhere in, in, in Canada, in Edmonton, wherever it might be. And you need to repent of those motives. You need to come clean before God. You need to turn from, from your selfish ambition and turn to Christ and then proclaim him from pure motives. If that's the case, then I would also say repentance uh, is necessary and it's necessary immediately. So we see Paul's ministry report here and what a wonderful ministry report it is. Let that encourage us as we go into this week that we would demonstrate to the unbelieving world and to those around us the power of the gospel and that God would use us as his instruments to further progress the message of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for our time together. We're thankful that we can come under your word, the preaching of your word. And even as we prayed last week for love to abound and for a fuller knowledge to, to be given to us of you, that we would gain discernment, that we would also be able to test and approve of the things that are excellent, and that we would be um, we would have integrity until the day of Christ so that we could be filled with the fruits of righteousness, which only comes through Christ, that you would be glorified, that you would be praised, God. Well, we see here, even this morning, again, God, we desire that our lives would reflect uh, the worthiness, that we live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ and that it would serve as a testimony of your grace to the unbelieving world, to those around us, family members, friends, co-workers, employers, but not only them, Lord, to government officials, to law enforcement, Father, to to those that you bring into our presence that we interact with, Lord, to health officials, to, to all of them. And that again, that you would receive the glory and the praise, that the spotlight would never be on us, God, but that your goodness would be shown through us even as we proclaim the gospel of Christ. And so thank you for this morning. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.